Our next guest on The Year That Made Me has been described as a one-woman freight train for the force of good. She's the founder and CEO of Australia's biggest food rescue charity, Oz Harvest, which has delivered millions of meals to those in need and revolutionised how we think about food waste. Ronnie Khan is an officer of the Order of Australia, a former Australian local hero of the year, and her philanthropic journey has been the subject of the documentary Food Fighter. And that fight continues as Oz Harvest celebrates its 18th birthday and the opening of a new not-for-profit restaurant, Refettorio Oz Harvest, or The Ref, as patrons like to call it. Ronnie Khan, welcome to The Year That Made Me. Thank you so much. Lovely to be with you. It's great to see you, uh, Ronnie. You grew up in apartheid South Africa. Could you tell us about the world you grew up in and how you saw it as a child? Well, as a child, it was quite a fearful world. I didn't know anything else. White people and black people, which is how... um, It's the way the world was described. It's the way the world was described. And, I mean, it's so horrifying to think of, and it was horrifying then, but on one level, that was the norm. But on the other, you know, I was lucky to be born to the parents I was born to because although they were not brave and courageous and did not fight the system, they embedded values in us that subliminally we absorbed, myself and my sisters. But, in fact, it was a scary world. You know, I'd sleep as a little girl with my father's walking stick next to me. Now, whether I actually thought I'd ever use it, the point is it gave me security Mm. because we lived across the road from a golf course and that golf course had people sleep in it Mm. through the night. Mm. Um, It was such an unfair, cruel and appalling system. And I grew up knowing it was wrong, but when you live in it, it affects you for the rest of your life. Mm, mm. You know, I certainly walk into a room and see colour. So tell us a little bit more about the family that you grew up in and you described your your parents as well. I have two older sisters, so I was the baby um, and a very spoilt little girl because my oldest sister was 10 years older than me, so I was her little doll. And in fact, the middle daughter, who is five years older than me, also treated me like a doll. And my father was besotted with me. So I was really blessed. My parents were quite extraordinary in that my dad had this car accident when I was six. Yes. Which meant that they didn't think he'd live through the night, but he did. And he actually spent the next couple of years in hospital. It meant that my mother had to find a job and support us. But she did that with such love and positivity that when people say to me today, you know, you've got high energy, I definitely think that I was genetically blessed (laughs) in that I absorbed that. And how did she uh, make a living for the family, and perhaps also you can tell us about how your father dealt with the what must have been a long and anguishing rehabilitation. Yeah. yeah. So my mum put her hand to anything. Although she had a qualification, she'd been to university, which is quite unusual, but my grandfather was an immigrant from Europe and education was hugely important. So she didn't work in her chosen profession because by then she'd had children and had not worked as an occupational, as a speech therapist. 
but she took whatever job she could from selling wallpaper, selling ads, to baking in our home. Um, and one of the things she did, which I laughingly say now that my logistics career and my packing vehicle career started <laughs> as a young girl because my mom would bake up to 100 cakes a day. Yeah, it was like in industrial our, scale baking, wasn't industrial it? Industrial scale in our kitchen. Our garage was converted um, and she had um, two helpers to help her. But then we'd pack the car and I was the littlest and I had to go out and deliver those cakes with her. But in terms of attitude, just pure joy, I don't recall a day that she complained. And you asked about my dad. So my dad came out of that experience. They never thought he'd, they told him he'd never walk again, mm. but he limped out of that hospital. And he was an architect. He climbed up ladders with his wonky leg. He had a car um, maneuvered and manipulated to, for him to be able to mm. drive. And it was only when he passed away that I actually realized that he was disabled. You can see, yeah, that entrepreneurial drive, a positive attitude Absolutely. and determination. Yeah, uh, resilience, yes. never give up, all of those things. Absolutely. With. We know you as, as, as I said, a, a member of the Order of Australia and a local hero in Australia, but you spent decades uh, of your adult life not in Australia, uh, yeah. living in Israel um, yep. uh, on a kibbutz. Yep. Could you tell us about that experience? Well, enormous fun with enormous challenges. <laughs> a kibbutz is a, a communal society where people work according to their ability and and get according to their need. So very socialist. Um, but what that meant was I was told where I'd work because they put me mm. where they needed people to work. And so I didn't know I was entrepreneurial. I'd never heard that word. But I certainly do know that I struggled being told, this is where you're going yeah. to work today, <laughs> even though I knew it was good for the society. So I worked with kids. I worked in the accounts department. Honestly, how, how I did that, <laughs> I have no idea. But for a kid, and my kids were born and grew up there, it was phenomenal. When did you come to live permanently in Australia, Ronnie? And what did you do when you got here? So we came in 1988. We had visited a couple of years before. And if you recall, a recession and, mm. and economically Australia was struggling. So we had come when we thought we could probably buy a house and manage and get work. We arrived with $10,000, I think that was really uh, what we came with. Mm. No work and two kids. And where we thought we'd live, we couldn't live because we couldn't afford to live there anymore. Um, and so I spent my time looking and thinking where the only thing I didn't want to do, because by then we had left kibbutz, I'd lived in the city in Israel and I'd worked as a florist. And the only thing I wasn't going to do was work with flowers because it's hard, mm. yakka. Mm. And I thought, I'll just do anything else. And the only jobs I saw when we arrived in, Jan arrived in January were for florists. It was like <laughs> this country was high on flowers. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. 
because in the Middle East, we didn't have the same festivals as we celebrate mm. here. Mm. And really, I did get a job. Finally, I knew we had to. I had to take something, and so I took a job in a florist on about the tenth of February, not really knowing there was Valentine's Day, <laughs> and I was fired on the fifteenth. <laughs> they just needed all hands on deck because Valentine's Day is the biggest floral day in Australia. <laughs> but it did. I had touched a flower, and it did mean that I then realised that's what I knew. And so I worked, I had a couple of florist shops for a while. Mm. And you went on to start Ronnie Khan Event Designs. Yeah. And that, I believe, led to a particular night which really <laughs> triggered your awareness of food waste. Could you yeah. tell us about that, Ronnie? Absolutely. I, I had started getting a lot of corporate work and was doing beautiful large-scale events to mark a unique moment in the life of either a business or an individual. But one night um, I was doing an event for a bank for a thousand people. And so I created this magnificent, like a Roman banquet of stalls filled with grapes and parmesan wheels and piles of bread and cheeses and barrels of wine and kegs of beer and my guests went straight to the bar, got pissed, didn't touch the food, mm. and there were thousands of kilo, kilos of food left over. And I just, it was unconscionable. Up until that point, so many of my events, we just threw away the bits of food that were left at the end because that's what you did. But this night was seriously different from all other nights. There was no way I could do that. So I loaded it up into my van and took it to the one place that I knew I'd passed. I'd never been there, which was the Matthew Talbot Hostel mm. um, on William Street in Sydney. And I just thought, I'll just go knock on that door and see if this food is useful. And they welcomed me with open arms. And I thought, wow, this is so cool. And so that really began my rogue food rescue life. And that's what leads to the year, Ronnie Khan, that you've chosen as the year that made you. Yeah. What year is that and why have you chosen it? So 2003, because that was the year that after doing some of these events and realising at everyone after this particular event that I could rescue food. Mm. So I tell my clients, don't you worry if there's food left over. I'll just take it to somewhere that needs it. And it felt good and it felt wonderful. My business was still growing, but I was loving rescuing food. I reached that point that I started questioning how it felt to put on an event as opposed to how it felt to take the food after the, the event mm. to feed people. And so I visited South Africa. I hadn't been back for... 20 years, and thought I'd just take a week, go and visit a friend and check in and think about really how I, how I manifest or, or what I do with this now new knowledge mm. but didn't need it to earn money and my business was doing well. I went to South Africa to visit Selma Brody an extraordinary woman who'd been a family friend and still is. She's 95 this week. She took me to Soweto. I'd never been to Soweto before. 
and in Soweto. As a child, that was the scariest place. It was a place that no white person went to. It was riddled with crime. The houses were cobbled together with corrugated iron and bits of wood and the smell of smoke and coal burning. It just was a scary place. And I arrive in South Africa 20 years later after Mandela's been released. And Selma says, we are going to go to Soweto. And I think she must be nuts. But it's clear that she knows what she's doing and she's taking me to show me something she has set up there. As we drive in, Selma says, under her breath, I was responsible for electricity in Soweto. And all I could think of was what can that feel like to know you've made that kind of difference to that many people? And actually, by the time we got to the AIDS clinic, which is what she'd set up, I knew that my life would never be the same again. And I'd start a food rescue organization, and I just would try and combine that with my work life. That same year, my sons called me and said they'd found a spiritual teacher that they had fallen in love with and were going to visit. And I thought, holy moly, my kids have now joined a cult. <laughs> and so my kid and his friend went off to this ashram and his mum and I decided we'd better go and check this out because we're going to have to save our children. And so we went off to India and this is the end of 2003 and we are invited to go into the temple and this teacher, the guru, who I had only now heard about, walked past me as I was standing in the temple and before I knew it I had crumpled like a little flower and on either side of the stage at the temple were two elephants, Ganesh. Elephants are very symbolic in India of removing all obstacles. And as I fell, apparently, there were flowers on the elephant's head that just fell off. So the current, the energy, I, I will never be able to explain. I've never fainted before. Mm. But the impact of this teacher meant that not only did I not save my kids from a cult, <laughs> but I became a follower of this teacher because his message was go out and serve people. Mm. So I had no idea that Oz Harvest would be what it be has become. I had no idea that this was the moment that my destiny was laid. Mm that my life would change forever and that purpose, gratitude and the ability to give back would drive everything that I did. It's amazing to hear those two seminal experiences from 2003 that led yeah. into the creation of Oz Harvest, yeah. which I think began in 2004, is that right? Well, officially, because it yeah. took a year to set well, it no up. Oh, no doubt, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But now it's grown to something not only across the whole of Australia, but yeah. internationally as well. Just how yeah. big is Oz Harvest these days, Ronnie? Well, in Australia we have 300 staff. We're in every major city. Um, we have smaller chapters in regional Australia. Um, we have about 4,500 volunteers who work with us. 
we deliver around 35 million meals a year. And we advocate and innovate. So we rescue food, but we're also very committed to understanding that food waste feeds climate change. The more food that goes into landfill, the more methane gases released into the atmosphere, which is a huge driver of climate change. Well, Ronnie, it's been a delight, as always, speaking with you. Thanks so much for telling us about that critical year of 2003. We always finish the year that made me by asking our guests to nominate a piece of music to finish up with that may or may not relate to that year. What have you chosen for us today? Well, I have chosen a song that actually does relate to that time because both my kids were, well, my adults now, (laughs) were in a band called Gelbison. Once they met this teacher, everything changed for them. And they, the band disbanded, disbanded, and the two of them, the Khan brothers, became a band. And they wrote and performed a song called Never Give Up. And it's quite beautiful. And in a way, it sort of became my theme song. <laughs> well, let's hear it now. Never Give Up by the Khan brothers and Ronnie Khan. Thank you once again. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share. Never give up, never give up, never give up on yourself. I'll never give up, never give up, I'll never give up on Yes, and that's just a taste of Never Give Up by the Khan brothers, the children of Ronnie Khan, who, as we heard, she failed to rescue from an Indian temple in 2003. Ronnie, of course, the founder and CEO of Oz Harvest and our guest on The Year That Made Me Today. And the full story of Ronnie's life is now told in her new memoir, A Repurposed Life, which was co-written by Jessica Chapnick Khan and is out now. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.